Amen. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Gospel of Luke chapter 2. As Eddie mentioned earlier, we are beginning the Advent season. This is the first Sunday in Advent. And Advent is important because it reminds us that the church goes and lives and breathes according to a different calendar. The world has its own rhythm and calendar, and we have January through December, and we, we organize it accordingly. But the church, we are to live and breathe and move by a different calendar. And so throughout the centuries, the church has celebrated different seasons, uh, like Advent, which is the coming, uh, waiting for the coming of God. And Advent is the start of the church calendar. It gets us going and reminds us that the world is put in motion when God comes. That's when the world is put in motion. And so this is for us, for the church, as it were, kind of like our New Year's celebration. It begins uh, according to with Advent. And so we're going to be focusing on this theme of the foolishness of God over the course of the next uh, four weeks, that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Luke chapter 2, we'll get there in a moment. Let's pray. Let's invite the Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts this afternoon. Lord Jesus, in this Advent season, we wait for you in expectation for the ways that you are going to come. We celebrate that you came 2,000 years ago. We celebrate that you come to us by the power of your Spirit. And we celebrate that one day you will fully and finally come and make all things new. And so open our eyes as we open up Scripture today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. In the Bible, there are many words to describe God, many words that we use. When we think about God, we think about God as being mighty. We think about God as being powerful. We think of God as being wise. We think of God as being forgiving. We think of God as being loving. There are many different words to describe God, but very rarely do we use the word foolish to describe God. What I would say is that in addition to God being mighty and powerful and forgiving and loving, that God is foolish. There's a foolishness about God. Now, in the Bible, there are two ways that foolishness is used. We see it in the book of Proverbs as it pertains to people, and we see it through the apostle Paul as Paul speaks about the foolishness of God. In Proverbs, to be foolish means to reject wisdom, which often leads you down a path of self-destruction, which leads you down a path, ultimately, of judgment. And so that's one kind of foolishness that we see in the scriptures. But when Paul talks about the foolishness of God, he's talking about a different kind of foolishness. The way I like to explain it, I'd say that God's foolishness is the countercultural and counterintuitive way that leads to life, but confounds the wisdom of the world. It is this countercultural, counterintuitive way that leads to life, but confounds the wisdom of the world. Now, in Scripture, there are many different uh, opportunities or or notions here uh, where Paul talks about this foolishness, and Paul says it in one way, the foolishness of God is wiser than human strength, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. When it comes to preaching, Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness. This preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, those who have not trusted in what Jesus has done on the cross see it as foolishness. How is it possible that some man who died on a cross can reconcile the world? It doesn't make any sense. But for those of us who have trusted in what Christ has done for us, we see that it is the very power of God. When we think about foolishness in Advent, there's a very specific uh, way that I want to anchor our time, that Advent tells us about the foolish ways that God brings salvation to the world. And what I want to unpack for us today is this idea that Advent tells of the foolish ways God uses disarming weakness to save and restore the world. Disarming weakness to save and restore the world. And this is what we see in our passage this afternoon. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse number 9, hear the word of the Lord. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. This is what we're going to focus on. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. When we read the story of Jesus' birth, it's always important to understand the surrounding context in which he was born, the setting in which he was born. The people of God, when Jesus is born, are under Roman rule. They're under Roman oppression. They are far from the glory that they experience as a people under King David's rulership when he was king. Another king's in charge, a guy by the name of Herod, and he's a violent, insecure, and temperamental king. And you never know what you're going to expect with Herod. And when Jesus is born, he comes into a hostile world. When Jesus is born, he comes into a dangerous world. When Jesus is born, he comes into an unpredictable world. In short, Jesus comes into a world that is armed and dangerous. He comes into a world that is armed and dangerous. We see how dangerous this world is a couple of chapters into the Gospels, a couple of chapters into the New Testament, where after Jesus is born, King Herod hears the news that there is a new king in town, and so he has children two years or younger all killed, massacred. Jesus is born into an armed and dangerous world. He's born into a world that is power-hungry, born into a world that is dangerously aggressive, born into a world that will crush you if you disagree. And when we look at our world today in 2016, we see that not much has changed. Our world and our lives are often armed and dangerous. When you look at our world, we see how armed and dangerous it is. On a global perspective, when you look at Aleppo, when you look at what's happening in Syria, we see how armed and dangerous it is. When we see the tragedy of war and aggression, we are faced globally with an armed and dangerous world. 
When you look at our country, when you look at the news, we see what's happening in the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota, where a pipeline is trying to be built on sacred ground. And images last week of armed forces straying people in below freezing temperature with water. We see that it's not just globally we are armed and dangerous. In our country, we live in an armed and dangerous world. When you look at our cities, when you see the gun violence that has taken place over the past few weeks and that has taken the lives of police officers, we see the tragic reality that our cities indeed are armed and dangerous. But it's not just a global perspective. It's not just a country perspective. It's not just a city perspective. It's not just the people out there. All of us in this room are armed and dangerous. Now, we might not be armed with artillery, guns, and weapons, but we are armed nonetheless. To be armed and dangerous means that there is a dangerous way of aggression that we often live that fractures relationship. A dangerous way of aggression that ultimately fractures relationship. When you get on the train in New York City, you jump on armed and dangerous. When you jump on the LIE on Queens Boulevard, you drive armed and dangerous. The sense of dangerous aggression is the air that we breathe. This aggression is the water that we drink from. It's the culture that we live in. At any moment in this city, you could get into a fight. At any moment, look at someone the wrong way. We live in an aggressive world. Yesterday, I made the uh, mistake of going to Home Depot. Day after Black Friday. Right there, the new uh, the Woodhaven Boulevard, there's a new Dick Sporting Goods, so they, they cut off parking and everything. And I walk in to pick up some things. And there's hardly any parking. You could be sure that I, this aggressiveness started taking over me. I'm preaching a sermon. I'm like being peaceful and everything. But at Home Depot, that don't work. And so I didn't say, man, why don't you park? No, I just jumped right into the parking spot. And then I'm waiting on line, long line. There's a guy behind me, and his car keeps hitting me. And hit me the first time. I said, bro, you know, the, the car right there. You know, and I just I turn around, you know, and then. And when, he didn't mean it, but he just wasn't paying attention. Second time, you know, just, you know, just second, second time, it, it, it hit me. Third time, I'm about to just take the whole thing off, you know? And he was smaller than me, so I could do that. You know, if he was smaller than me. If he was bigger than me, I would just look straight the whole time. You know, it just hit me the whole time. Something happens to us. This aggressiveness, this dangerous aggression that we live by. In a post-election season, it's all too easy for us to go down the way of aggression, to use our words to hurt and marginalize and label and crush. Look at the interactions you see on social media. Look at the interactions that you have participated in. Look at the ways that we have used our words to crush people. Let me ask you today, who, who are you trying to crush? 
Who, who's the aggression, that aggression you are feeling toward, the hostility you're, who is it? Is it a boyfriend? Is it an ex-boyfriend? Is it a co-worker? Is it someone from a different political party? Who are you hostile towards, aggressive towards? Now, some of you say, no, that's not my personality, Rich. I'm not really an aggressive type of person. I'm not a hostile type of person. And maybe your personality doesn't lend you to be hostile and aggressive. Maybe your culture doesn't lend you to be hostile and aggressive. Maybe your theology doesn't lend you to be hostile and aggressive. But if we can't be aggressive, we, know, we sure know how to be passive aggressive. <laughs> we might not tell you how we feel, but we will surely unfriend you on Facebook. We might not, we smile in your face, but we will talk behind your back. We might not be aggressive, but we know how to be passive aggressive. And so whether it's aggression or passive aggression, we, this is the air that we breathe, the water that we drink. And this notion of aggressiveness is not just in our relationships. This notion of aggressiveness permeates the way our culture operates, that if you're going to be somebody, if you're going to do something, you better be aggressive. If you're going to make a promotion in this company, you better be aggressive. If you're going to make something of your life, you better be aggressive. You better take the bull by the horn. This is the culture that we live in, and it is into this culture. And 2,000 years ago, that culture, that God comes into the world. In a very aggressive culture, an armed and dangerous culture, God comes. And it's not only that God comes, it's how. God comes. Advent celebrates not just that God comes, but how God came. Because God came in a surprising and foolish way that didn't make any sense to the world. When God reveals himself, he comes as an unarmed infant. In a world that is armed and dangerous, God comes as an unarmed infant infant. While Herod is wrapped in artillery, while Herod is wrapped with weaponry, while Herod is wrapped with horses, while Herod is wrapped with chariots, Jesus Christ, King Jesus, comes on the scene wrapped in swaddling clothes. While Herod is wrapped with power and domination, Jesus, King Jesus, is wrapped with humility and weakness. While Herod is wrapped with intimidation, Jesus is wrapped in weakness. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. This will be the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is foolishness. This is puzzling. It's foolish because the people of God expected the Messiah to come differently. They expected that when the Messiah was going to come, the Messiah had to be strong enough. The Messiah had to be violent enough. The Messiah had to be a warrior. If they're going to be liberated, the Messiah must come with strength. And so what they were expecting was something like this. This is the Messiah they thought was going to come. 
They thought it was William Wallace. They thought it was Maximus. They thought it was the gladiator. That's who they were anticipating coming to rescue them. But when God comes to rescue them, he doesn't come as a warrior. He comes as a baby, as an infant. This is foolishness. This doesn't make any sense to the world. Now, why does God come this way? Theologians have been trying to answer this question for centuries, but I want to offer a little bit of thought as to why God coming as an infant is important. In the coming of Christ as an infant, God is saying that salvation will never come through violence and aggression, but by a disarming humility, which is true power. This arming humility, which is true power. The disarming coming of God is to disarm you and I. Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes. There's something about a baby that disarms you. You can be the toughest person out there. Mean, mugging, and everything is angry. But you see a little baby something that a baby does to even the hardest person. There's a guy on my floor in my apartment building, and every time I see him, I say hello to him very enthusiastically. How are you, sir? Happy Thanksgiving. Great to see you. And every time I say hello to him, he goes, Great, great to see you, sir. And, hmm. So we've had some very awkward elevator rides. Just, how was Thanksgiving? Hmm. That's been, so I wonder if, if this guy has something against me. Uh, you know, he doesn't like me. Is there, is there a limitation he has? And so, you know, how are you? A couple of months ago, Nathan is about my two-year-old son. He's about a year and a half, and I'm holding his hand. We walk into the elevator, and the guy walks in. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And so he walks in, and Nathan sees him and goes, waves, and says, hi. And the guy at that moment, I've never seen this guy smile before. He starts smiling, and he goes, hi. And he looks at me and goes, Hmm. <laughs> There's something about a child that allows you to lower your defense, to disarm you, as it were, to make you soft. This is what this theologian, his name is Jürgen Moltmann. This is what he says. And this, I've been wrestling with this quote for the past couple of weeks, and I'll be wrestling with it for the next few weeks. He says, the kingdom of peace comes through a child, and liberation is bestowed on the people who become as children disarmingly defenseless. Disarming through their defenselessness and making others defenseless because they themselves are so disarming. Let me say that again. That's a tongue twister. The kingdom of peace comes through a child, and liberation is bestowed on the people who become as children, disarmingly defenseless, disarming through their defenselessness and making others defenseless because they themselves 
are so disarming. Children help us to disarm, to lower our guard, to not be so defensive. We think salvation comes through brute force, but it doesn't. It comes through a defenseless baby. And in an armed and dangerous world, Advent shows us that it comes through an unarmed child, and this unarmed child invites us to be a disarming presence in the world. That we as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, are to be a disarming presence in the world. And our lives are to be impacted by the coming of this God. And in times of hostility that the world is experiencing today, the church is to be a safe place, a disarming community. This is our call. If you've ever been in the presence of a disarming person, a person that, that you were able to just lower your guard, be vulnerable and open because of their vulnerability and openness. It's transformative to, to encounter someone who is disarming. They make you at ease. And yet, this is the invitation for the church in this Advent season. And so what does it mean to, be, to go the way of foolishness and this disarming way of Advent? What does it mean for us? Well, it means a few things, and I want to just unpack this, and then we'll sing together. To be a disarming and foolish presence in the world means that we choose the way of love over the way of being right. This is what children teach us, that we choose the way of love over the way of being right. I've recently been reading a book called The Dance of Connection by a psychologist named Harriet Lerner. The subtitle is How to Talk to Someone When You're Mad, Hurt, Scared, Frustrated, Insulted, Betrayed, or Desperate. And in the beginning of the book, she makes an important observation. She has imagined two children that are playing in a sandbox together. They're having a great time as two, two children would. They get their the buckets and their pails in the park, and all of a sudden you hear a child scream, I don't want to play anymore. I hate you, and they just move over. We've seen this before, yes? The child just is upset. And then five minutes later, the child is back in the sandbox, playing with their friend again as if nothing happened. And so two adults are looking at this, and they're just so shocked. How could that child, who was just enemies five minutes ago, go right back to entering into that kind of playful friendship with their friend? And a person responds saying, oh, it, it's simple. They choose happiness over being right. Us grown-ups, we rarely make that choice. We have a hard time stepping aside from, we say, I will be happy when you let me know that I'm right. Then we can play again. Until then, not so much. But what children teach us is that the way of love supersedes the way of being right. Now, of course, we must wrestle with issues. We must have hard conversations. To, to say the way of love is over the way of being right does not mean that we don't have hard conversations. It doesn't mean we don't address injustice. It doesn't mean we don't address the elephants in the room. It just means that the way we do it is different than the world. We choose the way of love 
over the way of being right. This is what children teach us. They live with a disarming defenselessness. I want to also say that to choose this foolish way is not just choosing love over the way of being right. It also means that we don't use the weapons of this world to get our way. When Jesus comes, he doesn't come looking like Herod. He comes swaddled in cloths. And there's plenty of weapons that the world offers us for us to use, especially if those weapons have been used on us. And if the weapons have been used on us, we have no problem using that same weapon back on them. And whether the weapon is labeling or just cutting words or sarcasm or put-downs or gossiping or judgmentalism or hurtful words, we often use the weapons of this world to get our way. Whether this is in a marriage, in a friendship, in political discourse, we often use the weapons of our world to get our way, to reciprocate, to offer back what has been dished out to us. And the way of Advent says, we put down weapons. And this is foolish. The world will say, you, you'll get trounced on. This is the foolishness of the cross. The foolishness of Advent. There's a story told of a man named Dallas Willard. He's a man that I quote from time to time. He's a, a professor at the University of Southern California. He passed away a couple of years ago. And the story that's told of him, of uh, he was teaching a class, and one of his students responded to him in a very obnoxious way, condescending, obnoxious tone, disagreed with this professor. And when he responded to this professor in a very obnoxious and condescending tone, one of the other students was very happy. Oh, this is going to be an opportunity for this professor to really just nail this guy, to put him in his place, to use that same kind of just, I mean, he could just, just mess him up right now in front of all the students and embarrass him. And after this student gives this obnoxious and condescending response, this professor said, well, I think this is a good place for the class to end. Let's stop here and let's pick up the next time. One of the students was very puzzled by this. Why didn't he approach him after the class? He said, why didn't you just give it back to him? You could have just embarrassed him in front of Why didn't you do that? And Dallas Willard's response was, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. We all want the last word. <laughs> we all want it our way. We want to have the last word, and then we want to just shut the door and say, there it is. Using the weapons, what has been dished out to me, I'm going to dish it back out to you. But to be a disarming presence means that we do not use the weapons of this world to get our way. Lastly, this foolish and disarming way of Advent, this foolish and disarming way of Jesus, is not just uh, choosing the way of love or being right, not just using the weapons of the world to get our way. Really, it's to be disarming means we are safe to be around. We're safe to be around. That's one of the things about babies. You're safe in their presence. 
We've all been around people who it wasn't safe to be around. I love how St. Augustine says it. He says, a friend is someone who knows everything about you and still likes you because you're safe to be around. Isn't this why people were so attracted to Jesus? Because he was safe to be around? Why were sinners openly coming to Jesus, confessing their sins before him? Because he was safe to be around. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is not repentance that leads to the kindness of God. And Jesus shows us this kindness, that he is safe to be around. No wonder the throngs came to him. But Jesus, they're sinners. Let them have a little bit of my kindness and watch them start repenting. That's not how the church operates. The church says, get yourself together first and then come to Jesus. He said, no, come to me as you are. Get a little bit of my kindness, my grace. You'll be repenting all over the place. This is the foolish way of the cross. Jesus is safe to be around. And what we see in this child Jesus 30 years later is that he did not change the trajectory of his life. He begins as a disarmed, unarmed child who is safe to be around, and he grows up. And when he grows up, he would die on a cross. And in his death on a cross, he demonstrates what it means to show suffering love that leads to the restoration of the world. Jesus could have attacked us back. He could have called angels and just smote everyone. But instead, he goes the way of disarming and suffering love. And somehow, mysteriously, as he absorbs the sins of the world as he's on the cross, somehow the world is being made right. Somehow he is restoring the world to himself. And one of the things you see about Jesus on the cross is when you are on the cross, there is no time and no ability for you to attack. If you're on the cross, you can't attack. It's impossible to attack and be on the cross at the same time. And we are to be on the cross with Jesus as what Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is, it is not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be on the cross means that you can't attack. So the question is, are we on the cross or are we not? The reality is I'd rather Jesus can hold the cross. Let me just do some stuff. I'll jump back on in a second. Let me do some more, and then I'll jump back on it here. That's how we operate. But we are to be fixed. So this is foolishness. How can we do this without the power of the Spirit? We can't do this in our own human strength. This is the power of the Spirit. And yet Advent calls us to a foolish way. The world will say this makes no sense. And it shouldn't make any sense. Because this is coming from a different system, a different kingdom, a different way, a different Lord, a different king. Amen. Let me invite you to close your eyes. Many of us in this room, we have gone the way of aggression, a passive aggressiveness, hostility. And Jesus invites us to this foolish way that we can't do in our own strength, but we can do with God. With God, all things are possible. 
He wants to take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. He wants to forgive us of our sins and make us into a disarming presence in the world. And if there's any time that the world needs it, it's now. Our marriages need this. Our friendships need this. Our workplaces need this. Our neighborhood needs this. Our interaction on social media needs this. We need it in every area of our lives. What does it mean to be a gentle, disarming presence in the world? That even in the face of injustice, our response is different than how the world operates. And so where is there aggression in your life? Where have you been angry and that anger has seeped into your soul? Where is Jesus inviting you to be disarming? Maybe you can just offer that to him right now. Lord, I've been angry in this area of my life, and I need you to rescue me, to save me, to disarm me, to end a cycle of violence, a cycle of perpetuating aggression. And through this foolishness, you somehow will bring restoration to my relationships, to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, ultimately to our world. Lord, we need you. We need your strength. We need your power. We need your Holy Spirit. So breathe on us. Pour your life into us. Baptize us afresh. Set us free. Fill us with the Holy Spirit and with power. May we be a different and model a different way of being in the world. So, Lord, we sing to you now words of worship and praise as we anticipate your coming. We sing to you in Jesus' name, and everyone said, let's all stand, let's sing together. Jesus chose the way of disarming weakness, not giving us what our sins deserved, coming with grace and compassion. And we just sang about, Lord, you know, Lives be healed, chains be broken. It comes as we go down the foolish way. It goes as we, you want to be first? Jesus says, be last. You want to be great? He says, be the least of these. You know, he says, he, he's all these paradoxical. You want to be strong? Be weak. The world says, this makes no sense. And of course, it shouldn't make sense to the world because the world knows nothing of this wisdom. It's foolishness to the world and yet is the power of God. And so maybe today you, maybe you have been feeling this sense of hostility, anger, aggression, and it's seeped into your soul. And you just want to come and allow the Holy Spirit to wash over you, to make you tender and soft, that you would respond uh, differently to the world. We have our prayer team here. So whatever need you have, come forward. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you never said yes to Jesus, if you've never said, Lord, forgive me of my sins, if you've never said, I want to follow you in your way, if you've never said, I want to take up the cross and follow you, 
prayer team is here. We would love to pray for you as you make that decision. To my right, we have the Lord's table. It's a foolish table. It's a table where you come. It's a table of brokenness. The world doesn't operate by brokenness. And yet, this is the way of the kingdom, brokenness. We take bread that has been broken, dip it into a cup, representing his poured out blood. You essentially say, I am what I eat. I want to take in this bread in the cup because I want to live as a disarming presence in the world. And so you can come forward to receive the bread in the cup, to come to receive prayer, whatever need you have. But as we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. And if you're new here, we close every gathering like this. It's a posture of receiving. It's a posture of weakness. The world, their posture is clenched fists. The follower of Jesus is open hands. We cannot give what we have not received. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, Brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shine his face upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, taking on a disarming weakness that makes no sense to the world. May your marriages and your friendships, and your parenting and your co-workers and every relationship that you enter into this week. May it be known by a disarming weakness. May Jesus make you safe for others. May you deal with the aggression and surrender it to him. May you work for justice in a way that is of his kingdom. May you choose weakness over strength even though this confounds the wisdom of the world. And as we wait for his coming, may we model this life that this world desperately is longing for. May God fill you with his spirit. May he give you wisdom. May he give you illumination and revelation of who Jesus is. And may you bear witness to this counter-cultural and counter-intuitive way of Advent. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the gentle name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace, everyone.